Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is uh, John Kish. We're going to talk about fragmented focus and attention deficit disorder. He's a professor at St. Benedict Classical Academy. So John is in front of real live students seeing uh, the effects of ADHD and, and all these things on students. So I think he'll give us a real clear indication on um, the state of our young people and uh, what's happening. So welcome, John. Thank you for coming. Richard, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and why you're interested in fragmentation of focus and ADD. Sure. So as you mentioned, I teach at uh, St. Benedict's Classical Academy in Natick, Massachusetts. And I know a fighting genius focuses on finding professionals at the top of their field. So when I think about you know what my field is, I guess I would say it's applied psychology or po- applied philosophy even, because my, my role as a teacher is to help students learn to work at their best. So I, I studied philosophy at the Catholic University of America, and that's that's kind of a shocking thing. People say, wow, philosophy, you know, that's not really a scientific major. What exactly are you going to do with that? But I find that it's deeply relevant to my work as a teacher because thanks to, you know, scientific advancement, technology and educational technology is changing all the time. But when it comes to figuring out how human beings are meant to work and meant to work well, you know, those answers don't really change. They've been around for a very long time. And so when it comes to helping our students, you know, really work at their best, live at their best, those are questions that people have been thinking about for a very, very long time. And part of my work is trying to figure out the answers to those questions and seeing how can I help my students in the classroom really, really live out those answers. If they're bad, then we find out and we leave it. If they're good, we use it. So what are you noticing in your classroom over the past couple of years? What's happening with people's attention span and their fragmentation and focus? Yeah, I mean, I find that I think across the board, and and honestly, you could really ask anyone, I think attention in our students is completely being disintegrated. And I don't just say deteriorating or getting worse. I mean, being disintegrated. It's a process that often students don't even realize is happening because this is something that with, you know, rapid changes in technology and social life, it's something that really I think young people don't have the kind of perspective to recognize what things were like even, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. I'm relatively young myself. I only graduated from college a few years ago, but even I can see where the difference is between my peers, people who are a few years older than me, my colleagues, and the students that I teach right now. And I think the number one a factor to explain this change is the use of technology, both in personal life and in classrooms, particularly, you know, screens. It's really hard to to ignore that factor. What policy do you have in your class? I mean, my kids go to public school and some teachers, they're like, nope, phone goes here in the cell hotel and that's it. And some <laughs> of them don't do anything. And then the class is a freaking nightmare. So like, what, what do you do and what are you allowed to do 
and how have you seen it affect the performance of the students? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'm very blessed to work at a, a school where it's pretty much unilaterally agreed that technology just does not help our kids. So we use we use pencil and paper. We generally have a no cell phone policy. We go up to sixth grade. So, you know, as the students get older, maybe they'll have phones in their backpack as, in, you know, in case a parent needs to call. But for the most part, we generally just keep it out of the classroom entirely because I mean, the reality is if you have a phone out and you're trying to figure out boundaries of when you do and don't use it, the fact of the matter is your phone may be in another classroom or in the classroom, but in a corner, but you're constantly thinking about the social media you could be on right now, the YouTube video you could be watching. You are constantly having a competition between the focus of the class and the phone that you could be using. And that's simply the way these these devices are made. I, I, I would challenge any people who are pro-technology use in the classroom to look at the personal families of the people who develop these technologies. Ask themselves, you know, which Apple executives are giving their kids iPads at the age of five? I, It's just not there. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, for their own children, right. They know right. the damaging effects, but meanwhile, they uh, they happily damage uh, millions and millions and millions of other people, adults and children. Yep. It's very tragic because, I mean, you think about parents are working so hard to provide their kids with this education and, you know, it's really being sabotaged. So I, I think parents and school teachers have a duty to take this seriously and to recognize that we live in pretty unprecedented times when it comes to the advance of technology and how you know, even though it may be something that's meant to be beneficial and productive, it, it may actually be deeply harmful. So what are you noticing in the classroom? You know, even though you keep this technology out, like what have you observed over the past few years in the students? So my personal experience as a teacher has been quite positive because I work in a school that's something of a unique environment. I work in a Catholic school, so that's we're in a particular faith tradition that focuses on something which I think is really provides an antidote to the problems of attention that have come up. So I can tell you something about what I think we are doing right, but my experience of where students and student attention is starting to fail actually comes from my own personal experience as a college student and then as a young professional. So I, I mean, I was born in 1999, so I'm, again, relatively young, but I grew up in the age of phones, where in middle school, in high school, I had an iPad, and that was something I regularly used. And, you know, I'll be honest, Richard, I actually do not have a lot of memories of that time, which is a, kind of a shocking thing to say. But when you think about what an iPad does to you, or a technology use at such a an emotionally volatile and, you know, just a, a time of life where you're very easily addicted to things, be it video games, be it sweets, alcohol. You know, well, I, I believe you. I mean, yeah. I talk to people that, so, you know, I don't use social media. I'll yeah. watch videos on YouTube, but that's about it. But otherwise, I don't use any social media. Yeah. I have it used for me, which is fine. Right. But, um, you know, I've asked people like, oh, you know, you're on TikTok. What do you remember about what you saw? They're like, I don't know. You don't remember anything. Right. Like, what's the point? It's just sucking away your life and your attention. It gives you nothing. I think, yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, man. Uh, yeah, that's completely it. So from my own personal experience, it really, I think, took a lot of the profit that I would have gotten out of my education if I had been able to pay better attention. And it just robbed me of that. And I didn't realize because 
the iPad, using that was a choice that I thought I was making. When in reality, if you look at the relationship in brain chemicals like dopamine or, you know, other neurochemicals that we're starting to learn more about as psychologists begin to explore attention deficit disorder more closely, we see, wait, this is, these are tapping into deep psychological circuits within us. And what we think may be a completely free decision to pick up our phone is actually less free than, than we would like to assume. And that raises real questions for what our relationships with these things should be. It's not like a soda where, you know, you can more or less just choose to not have one. It actually is a lot more addictive, a lot more quickly and subtly. Okay. Again, you're in a protected environment, but it can't be that all the kids' home environments are great or supportive, unfortunately. So what do you notice is the difference amongst the kids? Like, what can you tell about what's going on at home based on what you see in the classroom? Yeah, for sure. So I can, I can tell you there are some families that I think do allow a little more access to technology. And I think you just see it in an inability to remain present at each moment of the school day. So I have students who are able to apply themselves to tasks that I have seen high schoolers struggle at. I have, for example, we have sixth graders at our school who are able to discuss platonic philosophy. That That is a legitimate thing that they are capable of doing. And I've had those tensions with them. We also have students who come from homes with more technology and those students really struggle. And it's, and it's quite heartbreaking because at least within their own social world, they are comparing themselves with the kids that can study philosophy at their age. And they're like, what's going on? Like, why am I stupid? Am I, you know, this, that or other part of my role as a teacher is to help them recognize that no, you're not. It's, you know, like at your age, at any elementary school student's age, you are not hitting a point where the natural talent differences between individuals has been reached because you're just too young. It's like it's like somebody who started weightlifting, comparing himself with a guy who's been doing it for 15 years and saying like, well, I guess I just wasn't made for this. Not at all. Not at all. It's a matter of learning the strategies and doing it well. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Give me some nitty gritty. Like if you have two students, one, yeah. they can do whatever they want when they're home with technology all day, all night. Mm -hmm. And another one that's very restricted. Literally what will happen on a task? What do you notice them doing? So I noticed that probably within one or two minutes, the student who is using technology at home or has unfettered access to it has either resorted to some kind of behavioral distraction because they cannot handle the boredom of just needing to remain focused on this one task. They're either looking around the room or they're asking me questions that don't make sense to solving the problem or they're trying to talk to a friend. Those are at an elementary school age or older, 
those are kind of the primary defaults that we will go to to avoid doing what's right in front of us. And, you know, for some people, those strategies remain even as adults. My job is to try and help them unlearn those strategies so that they are able to focus on their work. But I just see people reach for the behavioral pacifier much, much faster. Whereas I think if you take one of some of the students at our school who, you know, don't have access to that technology, and I would say as a whole, that's actually most of it. Our, our school culture is quite unique. Maybe one or two times they'll do that. But as the year goes on and they kind of recognize the culture of the of this classroom is one where we do our work and we do it well, then you don't have those. Those behaviors begin to disappear. But it become, it's a matter of a learning curve. And I think that learning curve is much steeper and takes a much longer time to be climbed for somebody who comes from a technology background. Is there anyone that has a curriculum on literally how to cultivate attention span, how to build it back up, how to counteract all these effects? I mean, like yeah. I'm trying to do yeah. anecdotally, I'll, I'll be like, no, I'm not using my phone for, I'm going to go for a walk and I'm not using it. You know, I'm just going to look around and, and think. And it, it's hard. But oh my gosh, there's a yeah. curriculum for that. So there are, there are really, this is something that I personally... I mean, this is when I talk about fragmented focus. This is what I'm trying to, to, I guess, develop for myself. Because I don't come from a scientific background, a lot of what I've been doing personally is taking the research from men who have done this work, men or women who have done this work. And I would say, I think the person who has best provided a practical and robust solution to these problems is a Harvard psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Kevin Majors. That's M-A-J-E-R-E-S. He has an online platform called Optimal Work, where he focuses on work psychology or the really the way that human beings approach their work in a psychological way. And he really breaks down the process of work into three steps, reframing the task, which is to say you're you're approaching it with a positive attitude, and he gets into what that really looks like. But the second step is mindfulness, and that's something where you are actively adding in parts of your workday to do absolutely nothing but focus on your breath because your attention gets not necessarily diminished, but split across tasks as you do them. So you know, let's say I have three different phone calls, one after another. I have no time to catch my breath. What you're doing is you're taking, say, like a, a vase of water, which is your attention. You're pouring it into three different cups. The role of meditation and mindfulness is to take those three cups and pour the water back into the original vase with which you started the day. It's regathering your attention so that you can continue to do your work. And in the long term, what I've seen in my students and, and most importantly, what I've seen in myself is a regained ability to maintain a focused level of attention at all points of the day. It, it takes practice. This is something that I honestly takes months and years to accomplish, and I don't think it's ever perfectly done. But for so many people, whether they're students or whether they're just adults in a tech-filled world, this is these are practices that can be adopted at any point. Is it best to just be mindful or just sit and, you know, observe? Or can you use the work itself to reestablish your attention span and your concentration? Or is that a harder way to do it? That's a good question. I, I think what Dr. Majors, what I would say is that meditation is itself a kind of work. It's actually, it's the most basic work because what you're doing is you're taking your attention and you are focusing it on the physical feeling of your breath. 
That is a kind of work. I mean, you can expand the definition there to really say what I'm doing is focusing on my breath. And when I get distracted from that task, I slowly bring my attention back. So beginning with very simple tasks, I think allows you to do that. Do you employ this in your class for certain students that need it? Is there like a sub curriculum or do you have everyone do it regardless of whether they're capable or not of of paying attention? So this is is part of the unique culture at St. Benedict's where because we have come from a Catholic faith background, we actually have this something that's built into the entire school. It's called prayer. So the Catholic understanding of prayer is something where we will take a religious object, let's say like a crucifix, and we will practice spending time simply focusing on that crucifix, or which is to say like a cross with Jesus Christ hanging on it. And when we find ourselves becoming distracted, we start thinking about, you know, taxes or our schoolwork or et cetera, et cetera. We simply bring our attention back to Jesus. So that's that's something we have the students do, I mean, from kindergarten. And it's not it's not a practice that we do because of the attention benefits, but I have absolutely seen that Once students have finished praying, after a a prayer session or a time in the chapel, they are, you know, almost two times as focused. It's it's unbelievable. And I think as our students to perform at a much higher level. Granted, again, we don't do it for the physical benefits. It's part of our religious belief, but we do see those effects. And I think it speaks to why historically Catholic schools have been very successful within education. That's my personal theory, though. I don't I don't know if it's true. Do you think that it's uh, it's because you're doing prayer and, you know, God may be helping you to focus that it's so effective? Or is it the activity itself, for some reason, just works better than other activities? Like, have you experimented with secular methods? Do they work as well? Yeah. I mean, I think I think two things can be true at once. Um, I definitely I definitely believe that on a natural level, simply the act of having an object of your attention that you focus on. And then when you become distracted, just gently bringing your attention back. I think you could do that with almost anything and it would work. Um, On a faith level, I I do believe that there is a deeper significance and a deeper, we could say, internal change that occurs within us because it is prayer. But I, I think that's absolutely something that is open to secular audiences. So sometimes I think, you know, in the education world, I hear of, teachers, younger teachers, especially kind of implementing meditation moments where they'll have the students sit, breathe to kind of start class. And I usually, I, it seems like that's effective as long as you're, you're doing it consistently enough. The only criticism I would have of that practice is that I don't, I think it's something that families actually have to be doing for longer periods of time because you're only in a school, you're only in a class for say, you know, 40, 45 minutes and a real session of meditation to be effective, I believe would probably have to be around three to five minutes. That's a lot of class time uh, and it adds up. So usually it's something that I think is best done at the beginning of the day. And I personally try to, you know, do I pray slash meditate for usually like 45 minutes a day. Oh, wow. That's a long time for a lot of people here. Yeah. It depends on, you know, your state of life and your circumstances. Obviously, not everyone can do it. But again, that's my criticism would be you got to make sure you're doing it for long enough that your attention is actually being trained. Just like, you know, if you walk into the gym for five minutes, you're not going to get stronger. It has to be it has to be a serious commitment. Well, so what are you noticing in the beginning of a semester versus midterm versus the end? 
that there's this mm. everyday prayer, that there's maybe even a little bit of curriculum surrounding attention building. Right. Over a semester, does it have significant effect or are the kids that are messed up, then you can do with them the whole semester? No, that's a really good question. I, I think there is a, a quite a big difference. I mean, at least right now, we're in the middle of the semester. And I can tell you, particularly in the younger grades, we have students who I think at a public school would probably have been diagnosed with some kind of mental disorder of some kind. But throughout the year, the combination of a particular class routine that is something they come to expect and the addition of mental prayer that allows their minds to quiet down has, I mean, I won't say cured, that's deeply controversial, but it has led to reductions in symptoms where they're generally more well-adjusted than they would have been. At an older level, I certainly see academically very strong improvements simply because they're able to focus on the work more and that practice, their mental muscles have become stronger. So I think it's absolutely the case. Well, what do you hear from the kids themselves? Do they Are they happier when you help them or are they just mm. fight it the whole way? What about parents? Yeah. Okay. So as far as students go, I don't think it's something they actually notice that much because they tend to just see it as normal. Like, oh, you know, St. Benedict's, we pray every day. That's what we do. It's part of our faith. I don't think they actually recognize the significance of these practices, at least on a on an attention level, probably because they don't. I mean, a lot of them will have friends, say they play basketball with somebody from their local public school, and they might be able to see like a difference there. But I haven't had a student kind of come up to me and say, you know, Mr. Kish, I, re I really feel attentive today. So it's not something that I hear from students much of, even though I do see their performance improving. And as far as parents go, I mean, generally, we are very lucky to have a family community that's very devoted to the mission, and that includes the Catholic faith. So we really... You know, prayer being part of our, our school day isn't something that's controversial. It's kind of taken for granted. Why not tell some of the kids, this is what you're doing. This is what we're trying to help you with. Mm. Or do you ask them, like, do you feel better? Are you happy? Are you able to concentrate? Like, or, you know, are you avoiding asking them that? Or, um, you know, maybe the parents too get their feedback. Like, what have you noticed about your child over the semester? No, that's, a, that's actually a great idea. And honestly, I, we may do that. The reason why I personally haven't mentioned it to students is because, I mean, a lot of times they're not thinking in those terms. They're just thinking of my work is either get my work is getting done or my work isn't getting done. And I think it isn't until you're a little older that you start having these self-reflective observations on the nature of attention on attention. I think it's something that requires, ironically, recognizing whether or not you've been attentive requires attention. So it's kind of a, it's a something of a self-guided or a feedback loop, if that makes sense. And, it, you know, with some of the older students, I think we certainly would, we would have that conversation with them of, hey, here's some of the ways that St. Benedict's is different from a, a public school or some other kind of private school where we don't do, they wouldn't do those practices. But for the most part, no, it's, it's just not really something that generally comes up. Again, I think part of it comes from how we approach that question, because we don't implement these practices with the mind of let's set out to improve the attention of our kids. It's more, let's do this because it's our faith. And then the attention comes as a side effect. And I think this, I think this actually comes back to the nature of the attention problem in itself, which is really that attention deficit disorder is kind of more of a disease than it is anything else. And so talking to- it's like a lifestyle disease, a lifestyle yeah. of using too much technology. I, I agree. And I think 
for the students, you know, to to sit them down and tell them, hey, you know, you're really healthy at this school. Like it, it may be true, but the kid would be a little confused on why we're telling them that because they don't realize how many people are sick. So when, when they're older, that may be a conversation that we have with them about the kind of habits that you need to keep going as you go into high school or leave St. Benedict's. But at least as of right now, we don't feel the need to talk with them about it. What if you built in attention contests? You know, get a focus on this for, well, like I'll give you an example. I yeah, 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 go ahead. I play chess a lot online. Mm-hmm. I do 10 minute games and I can tell you it is so hard to focus on every single move for that time period. It's not even that long. But it's like a Herculean effort to not let it wander at least once and focus on every single move. And I've asked other chess players, and it's it's incredibly rare that someone could even do that for, again, a 10-minute a game on both sides. But I wonder if you did a competition with the kids over time. You know, let's say they do like a two-minute chess game, and then they build it up for five minutes and 10 minutes. And, you know, maybe the attention builds as they're learning this skill and being able to concentrate for longer. Or just straight up, we're going to focus on X, Y, Z, or give, give as many ideas as you can for solving X. And you set a timer and you see like whoever gets like the most ideas in this time period, you know, it's like, it's like a gamified way of them increasing yeah. their attention. Yeah. No, I, I actually really like that. And we do, we do have a lot of students that are big chess fanatics. There's one kid in particular, Tommy in the sixth grade who has beaten me at chess. So it's, it is definitely those kind of concentration games and games that require men- real mental patience are ones that are popular with the kids. But I would say that I I think our test of attention is really just their work. I mean, the work that they do in class where they need to focus on answering questions and thinking about the material that they're encountering either in a textbook or in nature that we may be studying for a science class, that is where their attention is is getting tested. It's not a game for sure, but we'll work in competitions like you know, which group is going to be the first to be able to do X. So we do have we do have some sort of competitive aspect to the work, but it's definitely not something as structured as you said, which, you know, so definitely something for us to consider. What do you think would happen if you offered a class to adults or teens, maybe adults, you know, how to, how to win your attention back, how to grow your attention span? Mm. You know, is technology fragmenting you, et cetera? Do you think there would be a interest in that? And what would you do in the class? Yeah, so this is actually something I've thought about offering for the future, and it may I may actually do it. It's It would just require some development. I think until I start this up, <laughs> the best place I would recommend for adults to go is, again, OptimalWork.com, Kevin Majors. I think he is the top of his field when it comes to this work. I would also recommend Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism, which is a great, a great work, a curriculum, you could say, a curriculum text for navigating what your relationship with technology should be. But really the practices that I would say, if there was a one-year class to win back your attention, the main things that I would say are, firstly, making an intentional relationship with the technology that you do need to use, say your GPS or your email, and the technology that you do not need to use. So setting those boundaries is absolutely critical And part of what I would do is try to help you figure out in your own life, okay, what's the least amount of technology that I can use? I mean, here's a tip. So Richard, do you use Google Maps on the road? Only if I'm not having an unfamiliar place. I mean, there's people that use, there's people that use navigation in the city they live in, which is crazy. Right. And actually it's funny when I started driving, that's, that was me because I grew up after maps. 
So like, you know, paper maps were not something that I grew up with. So Google Maps was what I was used to. But one one like small trick that you can do is if you go to Google Maps as you're on the road, you can click on directions and that will give you a list of steps like turn at this street, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, whenever I use Google Maps, I try to set it to that so that my attention is not on the screen in front of me that's showing me the road. Instead, I'm focusing on the street and the street names where I need to turn at. So again, that's like a super small thing that you can do. But those kind of, you know, attention hacks, I think are, are you know, can help us regain our attention in small ways. Another thing that I would stress is, as I've said earlier, making sustained time for meditation of some kind, whether that's prayer, if you're in a faith tradition, or simply meditation if you're not. And I would frankly recommend at least 15 minutes a day to start. If you can, try to work up to, you know, 20 minutes or maybe half an hour. But just recognizing that this is an investment in your mental health over the course of a lifetime. So it, it may seem like a lot of time when you're juggling kids or work or any sort of work that you are doing, but to recognize that attention is helping you approach those responsibilities with a fully present mind, I think it's worth the investment. Yeah, no, I'm sure it is. I have a, uh, a friend and a mentor of mine who's blind and I joke with him. I say, you know, you're in a way you're lucky, sadly, perversely, because you have like an unaffected brain you know, he can concentrate and he wears me out if I talk to him. He can talk as long as I want and doesn't get distracted and because he can't see any of that stuff. He, you know, he uses screen readers and he uses the internet a lot, but it's, you know, it's it's actually a help to him because he can't right. stand this stuff and be distracted constantly. Yeah. Yeah. I There's a Stanford, I believe, psychology professor, Dr. Andrew Huberman, if you're familiar with him, who has a really good, like, two-hour-long lecture on attention. So, ironically enough, if you are capable of, you know, kind of sitting and watching the two-hour lecture... <laughs> Or at least, or at least, you know, chopping it up into enough bits that you can you can get through it. I think he also has a lot of more empirically grounded evidence for techniques that can help you improve your attention. But you're certainly right. I mean, just the visual aspect of looking at your phones has wrecked so much havoc. It's it's really it's really quite incredible. And I don't think I think it points to this is my philosophy side coming out a much deeper issue that we modern Americans have to face with our relationship with technology, not just electronic, but in terms of our incessant need for technological progress, where we assume if it's newer, it's better. And if it's better, it's better for society as a whole. I think phones show us that that's simply not the case. And we as a society need to be more intentional about the kind of technologies that we are investing in, because who gets to decide these things? Well, it's also funny when they say, oh, now a person has a supercomputer in their pocket. They have access to all the world's knowledge. And who's actually using it? Most people, I would, I would, I would think, I don't know, 99% of people are not using the, you know, their device in that way. They're just using it for consumption of fun material. That's right. I mean, yeah, some, yeah maybe at times, but most of the time they're not using it. I, I'm really glad you said consumption because I think that's something I actually encounter. That mindset is something I encounter a lot as a teacher where many schools will, will turn to you. My own high school did this. They'll turn to you and say, you know, in order for your child to become a digital citizen in the 21st century, he, they need to know how to use technology. And there may be a great deal of truth to that. You know, if you don't know how to write an email, if you don't know how to make a Google search, there are problems there. But frankly... When you consider what's the best means to do this, 
personal technology is designed for you to simply and easily learn how to consume. It's not something you need to be taught. So the idea that a school experience is, is benefited by your access to technology is completely absurd. It's not true. I agree. It, and frankly, no one, no one knows. It's like saying I, I need to learn how to speak English by growing up in the U.S. It makes no sense. You just learn it de facto. That's you know, right. yeah. Who's not going to learn how to use technology without being taught? Get out of here. You know? Yeah, it's it's just the culture. You don't. It doesn't need to be explicitly taught. Now, how to maintain a healthy relationship with technology? How to not be addicted to your phone? Unfortunately, we're seeing that that is something which needs to be taught, and that's not anybody's you know personal fault. I mean, this is like. It's like people who were, you know, smoking cigarettes before they found out all these adverse health effects. You just didn't know. Nobody knew. So it was kind of normal. So when you see when people see these advertisements from the 1950s where everybody's like smoking a cigarette and they're like, wow, how could you know, how could people be so stupid back then? And then they go back to their phone. It's like, like, hold on. You know, we we have to we have to have a healthier relationship with the things that we consume, whether it's tobacco or our phones. Yeah, I mean, my attention has become fragmented. You know, I'm in my late 40s, so I've noticed that it's definitely become fragmented, and I have to continually try to recultivate it. You know, I'll have a uh, book, and I'll feel the phone. I'm like, oh, it's so much easier just to use the phone, and I'm so tempted to do it. And I sometimes never read the book, and it's very hard to deliberately say, no, I'm going to read this just for 10 minutes, and then I can do the phone and all the other stuff. You know, it's it's well, like if I'm out, you know, eating somewhere with my wife or whatever, I you know, I. We never use the phones. I put it face down, you know, either on the table or wherever in case like my kid calls and, you know, I need to pick him up or something. But other than that, we don't use the phones. And I, I remember like um, 10 years ago, we were eating at this place and I said to my wife, look, and this couple had finished eating and they were both on their phones. I'm like, what are they doing? They're not even talking to each other. They're just like on the phones. It's so weird. But now it's become commonplace, you know? Yeah. I, I think you've really caught on to something with noticing the importance of attention for relationships. That I think was the key trigger for me as a teacher, because my work is, as a school teacher is relationships. My job is to build relationships with my students in order to help them grow intellectually and in their work. But if I can't remember the names of my students because I'm addicted to my phone and my memory is so shot from, from that dependence how am I supposed to do my work? How is anybody supposed to do their work? And so when I realized that my kids would direct, my students would directly suffer because of my addiction, I knew it had to stop. I, it just, it needed to be cold turkey. I'm done. And obviously now I'm at a point where I am able to use my phone a little bit more. But again, I just think people should take advantage of this crisis and attention to recognize and I guess redraw their boundaries. Because that's, that's what I see the upside of this. If attention, if the frog was being slowly boiled, if our attention was only slowly being eroded and we just didn't realize it, it didn't affect our lives too badly, I don't think people would care about this. I don't think anyone would be listening to us right now. But the fact that attention has become so bad means that we're at a point where we can step back and reevaluate and make a healthier decision. It seems there's a lot of forces in society that are saying, go with it. It's okay. You know, give kids longer to do a test. Uh, let them do this. Let them do that. You know, don't take their phones away from them. Uh, we just got to do 30-second um, videos instead of five-minute videos because people yeah. don't have attention span. You know, it's like society excuses and apologizes for this instead of doing something about it, it seems. 
Yeah, this is this is kind of a deep philosophical question of what our society prioritizes and what it chooses to not prioritize. I, it's funny because I have I have some friends who have kind of made the argument that TikTok, you know, the thirty second video platform, was created by the Chinese to make us all stupid. Um, and look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's it's like whether the intention is there or not, the effects are there, and. It really seems to me that the tragedy of education in our time is that many schools are not going to make the just decision of trying to eliminate technology in the classroom. They're going to choose the easier path, probably because they aren't really thinking about what's best for the kids. They're thinking about what's easiest for them. Because if you have a classroom of students who you know are used to technology and you have parents who are used to technology, you don't want to kick the cash cow. You just let it be. How is your? I hope it's not too private to ask, but has your home life benefited from cultivating your own attention? Tremendously, tremendously. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just given because I'm able to do my own work as a teacher on time, and I'm able to do it with a clear head. I can go home and I can focus on my fiance. I can focus on cultivating my relationships with my friends, and when you know, God willing, I have a family of my own, I can focus on my own children. So that's something that I think is just one of the most important habits or, you know, if you want to use a really old term, virtues to cultivate is simply the habit of being able to remain present at any given moment. And that's hard. It's not easy. It's something we have to be struggling for in pretty much every part of our day. But, you know, just like anything good and and difficult in life, you start with baby steps and you remain consistent and you just focus on beginning again every single day. And I think what you've mentioned with, you know, for 10 minutes, I'm going to focus on this one word. I think that's great because really it doesn't matter how bad your attention has gotten. The important thing is that you are consistently challenging yourself to do a little bit more than you're comfortable with. And if you can do that over periods of time, just like with with any with growth in any field, you're going to get better because the muscles of your attention are going to get stronger as you put them in situations where they need to adapt. Hmm, makes sense. Well, very good. John, we're out of time, but let's recap the resources for listeners for themselves or for their children. Where can they go to, to start cultivating their own attention and their children's attention? Absolutely. So again, the first resource that I would recommend is a man who has personally you know, done very much for me. His name is Dr. Kevin Majors, M-A-J-E-R-E-S, and his platform is OptimalWork.com. So if there's anything you take away from this conversation, please go check out that work. Another resource I would recommend is absolutely uh, Cal Newport, his book, Digital Minimalism, and another book called Deep Work, I think are both you know profound reflections on on the nature of attention and how we can reclaim it. Two other things I would recommend. Matthew Crawford, he has written a book called The World Beyond Your Head, which is really about regaining attention through the use of our physical hands in working in the trades or with physical materials. That's something that you really, you know, we don't see anymore as the trades have kind of disappeared. Last resource, of course, is my own school, St. Benedict's Classical Academy in Natick, Massachusetts. I think not to boast, but I think we are doing great work in education. And if you're interested in what that future may look like as more schools become interested in attention, definitely check us out. Okay, great. Well, Don, thanks so much for coming. It's been a really good call. I appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.